Hebrews 12. We are extending our little break here from the book of Isaiah as we look together at this wonderful passage. We're going to begin just by reading it. Hebrews 12, and our text is verses 18 through 24. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. We have in this passage a comparison, don't we? You can see that, the first part of the passage, verses 18 to 21, and then the second part, verses 22 and 23, 24. These two portions are set together by way of comparison. And in fact, they're important comparisons between what happens on Mount Sinai and what's described at taking place at Mount Zion because God is the same. God is always the same yesterday, today, and forever. And it is the, it is the sameness of our God that binds all of these things together. But there's also, um, they're also clearly set against each other by way of contrast as well, right? On the one hand, you have what is tangible, what can be touched. On the other hand, you have what is intangible. On the one hand, you have what is earthly. On the other hand, you have what is heavenly. On the one hand, you have a reference to Mount Sinai that we read about earlier, the historic account in in, in Exodus 19. And on the other hand, you have an entrance to Mount Zion. On the one hand, you might say we have a reference to the Old Covenant, and on the other, to the new. Or, on the one hand, a reference to the law, and to the other, to the gospel. Now, that's not to say, of course, that Israel did not know the gospel. The gospel was preached to them, just as surely as it has been preached to us. It was preached to them in the sacrifices, and in the temple, and in the priesthood, and in a hundred other ways. But the law... The law of God, the commandments of God, the holy expectations of God upon people took the forefront in the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant stood as a way of preparation for the coming of Christ, 
who would establish the new. The law and the gospel are here together in this passage side by side in such a way as I think brings um, salvation and hope for the soul who will receive them. Now, modern evangelism is very quick to pass over the law. You know, some presentations of the gospel, some presentations of, uh, of, of evangelism simply start like this. God loves you. We want you to know that. He has a wonderful plan for your life. And that's where it all begins. And I can just see the common person on the street nodding along and saying, yes, good, that's what I always thought. God loves me and has a wonderful plan for my life. And uh, I'm, I'm a pretty good person. I try to do right. I'm a, I'm a nice man. Um, I mean, it's just kind of God's job to be kind to everyone, right? He's just a loving God who accepts everything and everyone. That is, of course, uh, a great impoverishment to the attempts, the earnest attempts, the biblical attempts at evangelism in our culture. The law is almost completely missing from our land. The holy expectations of a righteous God are almost unknown in our culture. The law and the gospel are twin graces. They are God's scalpel and suture, on the one hand, cutting open, and on the other, the other restoring and healing. But why would God cut at all? Why would he shake the earth? Why would he pronounce such sore imprecations upon all who would be disobedient? Why? In order to expose our inherent corruption. The law comes to expose our sinfulness. You must see that you are a broken, sinful, needy, helpless person, if you would run in earnest to the only Savior of mankind. And so the law has its absolutely essential place. Charles Spurgeon said, Sometimes we are inclined to think that a very great portion of modern revivalism has been more of a curse than a blessing. Because it has led thousands to a kind of peace before they have known their misery. Restoring the prodigal to the father's house and never making him say, Father, I have sinned. How can we be healed who is not sick? Or he be satisfied with the bread of life who is not hungry? The old-fashioned sense of sin is despised. And consequently, a religion is run up before the foundations are dug out. And the consequence is that men leap into religion and then leap out again. Unhumbled, they came into the church. Unhumbled, they remained in it. And unhumbled, they go out from it. There's a lot of truth to that. If there was truth in Spurgeon's day, I can't help but think how much more so there is truth about that in our day. So God brought Israel to the foot of Mount Zion, to, to the foot of Mount Sinai, excuse me, in order to humble them, in order to expose them. The law came to increase the trespass. 
Not that there was no sin before the law was given. Oh no, death came from the very beginning. This is proof positive that there was sin from the very fall of mankind. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Law creates in human beings an awareness of sin that is so necessary. The, the necessary digging up of the rubble of our souls in order that the gospel seed can find ground in which to take root. The knowledge of God's commandments are what counts my sin against me as a transgression. For now I know, not only that I am vaguely sinful, but that I am in purposeful violation of God's moral will. That's what the law does. Oh, I praise God for the law. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved." Oh, I don't know. You should pray. Some of you should pray that the law of God will rest heavy upon the consciences of those whom you care about. The law is what makes sin sinful beyond measure. That is, that it makes my inherent wickedness obvious in that it has gone beyond the bounds of what is good and right and become exceedingly sinful. You would do well, all of us would do well, to remember what it is to stand before that holy mountain of God's righteous law. To stand at the foot of Mount Sinai. We see in this text that the giving of the law was accompanied by, verse 18, what may be touched. Now, some translations are, indicate that that is a reference to the mountain itself, the mountain that may be touched. But, of course, the mountain was specifically the thing that was not to be touched in any way. Um, this word, what may be touched, is sometimes translated in the Old Testament, in the Septuagint, as um, something that's engraved or something that's fashioned. And I think probably verse 27 is sort of the key here of understanding what he's making reference to. Because in verse 27, the writer of Hebrews talks about the eventual removal, that is, by the way of God's judgment on Jerusalem and on, on the temple, the removal of, quote, the things that have been made, that is, the things that have been fashioned with hands, the tangible old covenant accoutrements of the temple and all of its furnishings and the vestments of the priests and the altars and the ark and the sacrifices, all of these are the tangible language of the law, the physical, tangible shadows of intangible realities that are communicated down to earth 
in these ways under the Old Covenant. And all of them are designed to communicate God's utter holiness, His separateness. Right? Isn't this a communication of the distance that there is between human beings and a holy God? You see it on that mountain where they're told not to come near or even come to the, touch the edge of the mountain of God's presence. And you see it in the tabernacle. You see it in the temple when the, when the glory cloud came and obscured God's presence from sinful people. You see it as they have to go through a series of veils and ceremonies and sacrifices and priests who stand guard in front of that temple. Did you know that's one of the things that the priests did? Not just to serve the Lord, that was one half of their service, one half of their calling. The other was to guard the holiness of God. Just like Adam in the garden was called to guard and to serve in that garden, these priests and Levites were to guard the holiness of God. For sinful man to come near to a holy God like that meant that blood would be shed. That's the only path in between sinful human beings and a holy God. They had to come through sacrifice. Either the animal's blood was shed, or if they would come into the presence of God unbidden and without the blood of sacrifice, their blood would be shed. Remember the story in Exodus chapter 32 of the people who um, worshipped the golden calf, even right after this account of the giving of the law. And who was it that um, is on the Lord's side, Moses said. Who is on the Lord's side, let him come. And the Levites, the people who were called by God to guard the holiness of God, those Levites came and took up the sword and with the sword killed those who would persist in, um, in the worship of these false gods, thus guarding the purity and the holiness of true religion and of the worship of God. So, you come to Mount Sinai through the things that have been made. And secondly, he says, um, the manner in which they were to, uh, in which the law was given. And that communicates something about the holiness of God. The manner in which the law came to them, first of all, was with blazing fire. Blazing fire and darkness and gloom and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. Can you imagine what that must have been like to stand there at the foot of the mountain and the top of that mountain became covered with uh, fire out of heaven? I mean, the whole top of the mountain was burning. The Old Testament says that it was like a kiln, like just a, a furnace on top of that mountain. And the Bible tells us that God was in the midst of that fire in the midst of that furnace, just like he was in the midst of the fire that appeared in the bush when he manifested himself to Moses. And we're told that this is the nature of God. God is a holy God. God is absolutely all-consuming in his holiness. No human being can stand in the unmediated presence of God and live 
and certainly no sinful human. This character of God, this nature of God in his absolute perfection is unchanged in all of the history of mankind. And this is why when you come to the very end of this passage and verse 28, he says, the end of verse 28, let us who come to Christ, who come to God in Christ, in the new covenant, let us offer to God acceptable worship with what? With reverence and awe. Why? Because our God is a consuming fire. Not he was once, a long time ago on the mountain. This is God. He is holy. He is righteous. He is absolutely other and pure in his being. He came down in a blazing fire. No one may come ever into the presence of God except through fire. And for ordinary mortals, that means only one thing. That means death. And for those who would come before God, without His atoning grace, it would mean the eternal hell of judgment. Only in Christ Jesus can we pass through the fire of our final judgment and come out the other side, any of us, unscathed. Like the three men who were cast into the fiery furnace of old, they came safely through because the mediator was with them, walking in in the midst of that fiery judgment. And much more so, it will be that the only people who make it through the fiery judgment of God's presence when every human being stands before him is if they pass through that fire in union with the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. God came down on that mountain long ago in a blazing fire. And then he says, with darkness and gloom, with darkness and gloom, there was heavy smoke covering that whole mountain, obscuring it from view. Can you imagine what that darkness must have been like with that fire behind it? And this was a heavy Thick darkness. The Bible uses that kind of language again and again and again throughout the Scripture to describe the coming of God's presence as God wraps himself in a cloak of thick darkness. I mean, the kind of heavy darkness that you can almost feel in your soul. This is the sense of the holiness and the dread of God that for any sinful human being to come into his presence, it would just inspire the greatest of terrors beyond anything that we've known in this um, earthly existence of ours. There was another mountain over a century later that would also be shrouded in darkness, and it would take place when all of the sin of the world, of God's elect, converged upon that mountain on the shoulders of the one who died there on that old rugged cross. Heavy, thick darkness and gloom. And a tempest, the Bible says. It was accompanied by a tempest or a huge storm, apparently, that covered that whole mountain. The Old Testament tells us that there were lightning strikes and fearful thunderclaps. And Exodus even says that the earth itself shook with an earthquake when God came down on that mountain and spoke out of heaven. And when... 
when mankind stand before the final judgment, it will be no less fearful. It will be no less fearful because this is the same God, this God of holiness and righteousness. When man stands before God in the final judgment according to the law, it will be like all of the earth's most fearful storms rolled into one. This is the fury of the Almighty against wickedness and ungodliness. The coming of the law was accompanied by the sound of a trumpet, a shrill trumpet blast. Exodus actually gives no indication that this was of human origin. It's just as if it was out of heaven itself, this eerie, spine-tingling, shrill sound. And in fact, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 says, the trumpet will sound again when the Lord Jesus Christ returns to this earth with a loud shout, the voice of an angel, and another trumpet blast before he stands to judge all of the earth. And human hearts quake at that unearthly sound that summons them before the bar of the Almighty God. This is God. And the law came also with a voice, it says, that thundered out of the heavens. The voice of the Lord and his mighty angel reverberating across that landscape of old. And the effect was that the hearers begged that that voice would not speak in their presence again. That that voice would not speak directed towards them. They asked that Moses be their mediator, that God would speak to Moses and that he in turn would communicate God's will to them because this voice was so fearful the voice of many waters, the voice of a thousand thunderclaps. This is a voice that shook these souls to their very core. And so they needed exactly what you and I need, which is someone to mediate, someone to go between, someone to stand before the almighty presence of God and to communicate to us His Word. And the law also created, when it came, a holy space to keep sinful men at a distance from the all-consuming holiness of God. No one may go up into the mountain, God said. Do not let the people come up and try to see God. No one is even to touch the edge of the mountain. In fact, he said, even if one of your animals wanders over to the mountain, you kill it. And you don't even kill it by laying hands on it. That animal has become um, holy to the Lord, to be consumed under his righteous, holy presence, then it should be stoned or shot from a distance. Such is the holiness of God, the, that, that, that God the scripture says, is unapproachable. That he alone dwells in immortality. Alone, in himself. No man can see him and live. And that is true 
by virtue of our natures, because we are created beings, mortal creatures, and it is true even more so because of the vast gulf that has been set by our sinfulness that cannot be traversed by any human means whatsoever. Like the sun is good in that it gives to our world light and warmth, and yet we would be like a moth flying towards the sun, consumed a long way off, before ever being able to penetrate the mysteries of the divine holiness of God. And all of this, the fire and the darkness and the gloom and the trumpet and the voice and the death order, all of it was so terrifying, the scripture says that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Even I, who am called to go up into that mountain, am trembling with fear. Remember, even at the burning bush, Moses who was called to stand in the very presence of God, God said as Moses approached that burning bush, stop, you've gone far enough. That's, that's, you need, that's the distance you need to have from me. Even Moses, later when Moses was given a glimpse of the glory of God, and God manifested himself to Moses in an unusual way on the top of the mountain, God hid him in the cleft of the rock to see only the trailing edge of his glorious manifestation. I mean, this is the holiness of God. Even Moses trembled before this God. Do you know that the presence of God is the most dangerous place in all the universe? The revelation on Mount Sinai instilled fear into those people, and properly so. It is a fear of God that I'm afraid has been utterly, almost utterly lost in the world around us today. This is God. And He is ever the same. Righteous beyond anything that we can imagine. Holy and perfect in His being. All of this context is... The context of the giving of the law, the reflection of God's very nature and His holiness and His righteousness and uh, a manifestation of His expectations on humankind. As the, uh, the Lord said to the people in Exodus chapter 20, God has come to test you so that the fear of Him may be before you and that you may not sin. None dare come before the presence of the holy God except they are holy themselves. And of course the trouble is that none of us, not one of us can ever make ourselves holy enough for God. Israel's failure to do that and ours should have made them desperate for Salvation and mercy. For to understand that God is holy and that you're a sinner is to stand on the very threshold of grace where sin abounds and the knowledge of sin abounds and the conviction of sin abounds 
That's where grace begins to really be manifest. And in verse 22 and following, we have the gospel. Good news. In the midst of all of this, standing before an unapproachable God, there is good news. You, he says, have come to Mount Zion. And the you, of course, that he's speaking to, the you in the audience, are people who have seen the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ, who have believed on Jesus as their Messiah, as the one to whom all of these types and shadows were pointing. These are people who've seen that. These are people who have seen their own failure to meet the law's demands, and it has driven them to hold on to the promise, the promise of salvation. And I hope and pray that that is where the Lord has brought you. You have come under the the harsh ministry of the law in order to stand with anticipation and hope before the feet of Christ to receive good news. And the gospel, he says, verse 22, brings us to Mount Zion. Sinai was God's people in the wilderness. Zion is God's people in the promised land, in, in the land of rest. It's God's people finally home. That's what Zion is. But this is not merely an earthly home he's talking about here. He's not talking about the ancient city of Jerusalem or, or the ancient uh, land of Canaan as it was that had become Israel. He's not speaking of an earthly home. He says here that the gospel brings us to the city of God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Brings us to the heavenly city, Jerusalem, the temple, the earthly Old Testament worship were all shadows that were like cast down from heaven such that it was as if God manifested the realities of glory by shining the light of His grace down and the shadows that were cast down were seen in the things that were made, the things of the temple and the accoutrements of the Old Covenant. But now, he says, you have come to heaven itself. How is it that we've come to heaven itself? Here's why. He's already said it in the book. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 24, he writes this. The author says that Christ has entered not into the holy place made with hands. Right? There's that same kind of language. Not into the holy place made with hands. Not into what can be touched. But, which which, he says, are copies of the true things, but Christ has entered actually into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. And so those who are in Christ, those who are united to Him, have come to the city of God, the heavenly Jerusalem. In the person of their mediator, they are in heaven. You know, we often say, um, when we die as Christians, when we put 
our bodies into the ground. We will be with the Lord in heaven. And that is true. But it is true that we are there already, positionally, in Christ. That is the reason that when we put our bodies in the ground, our souls will be with the Lord. It is because we're already there. Because our, our, um, our end has already been determined because Christ has already paved the way. In Ephesians, the Bible tells us that we are seated with Him in the heavenly places. Colossians says, set your mind on things above where Christ is at the right hand of the throne of God because your life is hidden with Christ in God. That's where you are. And those who trembled under the law now come boldly into the throne room of heaven not because of themselves, not in their own goodness, but in the goodness of of the Lord Jesus Christ. And one day, that new Jerusalem, the Bible says, Revelation chapter 21, will descend out of heaven from God, that bride of Christ, all of those for whom He has died, and all of those who have gone on to be with Him, they will someday come with Him down out of heaven. But even now, all of us who are in Christ have already come to that holy city by faith. We have come to the city of God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to, what else does it say? We have come to innumerable angels into the presence of the holy ones that surround the throne who are gathered together in festal gathering, in a festive gathering of angels. That's where we are in the gospel. Those who are in Christ are now welcomed into God's presence that once was guarded by those holy beings to join in with them in praise to the Savior for all eternity. Those very beings that stood at the entrance of the garden to, with flaming swords on pain of death to keep anyone out of the presence of God. Those same angels that were woven into the very fabric of, the, of the, uh, the veil that separated people from the holy place of God in the temple and the tabernacle. Now, we are come into their midst. And of course, you read the book of Revelation and that's what you see, right? Those saints who have died in Christ, are already around the throne. The saints and the angels and all of the mighty creatures that God has made surrounding the heavenly throne, giving praise and glory and honor to the Lord forever and ever. We're there. This is what he's saying. Now, when we worship here, when we sing God's praises, we sing, as it were, with the saints and the angels because our, our position is guaranteed in Christ. What a... What a glorious message this good news is. And instead of striking terror in the hearts under the gospel, we are brought to a place of festive joy. The gospel brings us, the text says, to the assembly or the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Who is God's son? He has one only begotten Son. His one and only Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God by nature, 
the only obedient one who did the will of his Father and was well-pleasing to him in all things. He has one Son and one only by nature, but through the gospel, can you believe this? We are united to him. And thus God brings many sons to that same glory that is deservedly his. And through the grace of the new birth, this comes. The grace of regeneration is the means by which this comes to us. We are the church of the firstborn of God. Born of God. Born citizens of that kingdom. Even though we were estranged from him. Here's the way the 87th Psalm says it. Glorious things of thee are spoken, O city of our God. You, you recognize that as a hymn? <laughs> yeah, we sing that sometimes. Glorious things of thee are spoken, Zion, city of our God. Among those who know me, I mention, this is the city speaking, among those who know me, I mention Rahab and Babylon. Behold, Philistia and Tyre with Cush, all of these Gentile lands. But this one was born there, they say. This Cushite is saying, I was born in Jerusalem. I was born in the holy city. I was born in the presence of God. This is not a natural birth we're talking about here. This is a something supernatural. I was born there, they say, and of Zion it shall be said, this one and that one were born in her, for the Most High himself will establish her. And the Lord, listen to this, the Lord records as he registers the peoples, this one was born there. You're a citizen of the holy city. Written down in his book. Isn't that exactly what the writer of Hebrews says? You have come to those who are the firstborn, whose names are enrolled in heaven. Citizens of that sacred, holy city. Not by virtue of your natural birth, but by virtue of the grace of God in regeneration. Through receiving the gospel our names are enrolled among those who have been born into heaven. This is where you belong. Your citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await our Savior who will transform this lowly body to be like His glorious body. The gospel brings us to that assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in the holy city. And it brings us to to God. And notice that even here he is still the judge of all. Right? His nature does not change. The gospel brings us to God who is the judge of all. We're reminded by this that we will still have to face the judge of all the earth. And that is a fearful thing. It, Christians are not people who, who have no fear of God in the sense that now that their sins are forgiven, they're flippant about God, they're presumptuous. No, God's people recognize that they have to stand, just as all men do before the holy and righteous judge of all the earth in the final judgment. And this is why 
It's, it's, it's still a, a heavy, serious thing. And there are warnings right in this passage. Look at verse 25. He says, See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. And he's making a reference to God speaking to the people of Israel in the Old Testament at Mount Sinai. And God speaking through Christ in the New Covenant. And he says, Do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. And so the end of verse 28, Let us offer to God then acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. You have come to the judge of all the earth. But you will stand before that judgment not on your own, simply measured up by the standards of God's bare law. But if you are in Christ Jesus, you have come to that great judge of all the world and look at the spirits that are standing before him. They are, it says, the spirits of the righteous that have been made what? That have been made perfect. For those who have died in Christ have been glorified, have been perfected. Their spirits yet awaiting their glorified bodies, but they are living in holy, absolute holiness and righteousness, confirmed holiness before the face of God. Why? Because they were in Christ. It's not because they were some great super saints and had more than enough merit to make it into God's presence. Oh, all we have to do is uh, leaf through our Bibles and look at those saints who are now the spirits made perfect, standing before the Father, and know that that is not the case. But they are made righteous because they are united to the righteous one. Those spirits who even now await the fullness of God's plan are the spirits of the righteous who have been made perfect. And if you are in Christ, then through faith, that is your company. You've come to that company. You're a part of that group. The church on earth hath union with God, the three-in-one, and mystic sweet communion with those whose rest is one. There is one church, and it is across all time, and Part of it is on earth and part of it is in heaven, yet awaiting the fullness of all things. But we have surely come to the spirits of the righteous made perfect through Jesus Christ. And we have come, finally, the climax of gospel grace, verse 24, to Jesus. <laughs> Where did you think it would end? To Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, that new covenant that is spoken of as a better covenant, Hebrews 7.22 and 8.6. But the old covenant said, the one who does the commandments will live by the commandments. And those commandments were designed by God, not only to reveal himself, but also to reveal our sinfulness and to be a tutor to lead us to the gospel. The new covenant. In the new covenant, God in Christ says, I have done for you what you have failed to do for yourself. 
And that is to obey the law of God, to con- be conformed to the image of God perfectly. There he was, the one who did it. Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. And he mediates God's favor, and blessing, and the joy of God to all of those who trust in him. And finally, we come to the sprinkled blood of Christ that, he says, speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. We come to the sprinkled blood that speaks, blood that speaks. This is what you come to in the gospel, speaking blood. And this blood speaks a better message than the blood of Abel. So what is the blood of Abel? Is it the sacrifice of Abel, the offering that he made, the blood that he shed as a sacrifice to God? That certainly, it certainly is true that the blood of Jesus Christ's sacrifice is much greater than the blood of any animal sacrifice. Just as as, uh, kissing your wife is a lot better than looking at her picture. But, I think that this is something else. In my opinion, this is a reference not to the blood that Abel shed as a sacrifice to God, but the shedding of Abel's own blood. And I think that because, first of all, of the original context in Genesis chapter 4, where the mention of blood is not a reference to the animal sacrifice, but rather to the blood of Abel himself. And it's mentioned multiple times in Genesis 4. And I think this also because there's only one other reference to the blood of Abel that is found outside of that passage in Genesis chapter 4, and that's Luke 11. And in Luke 11, Jesus makes reference to the martyrdom, the killing of godly people who bore testimony to the Israelites. And he makes reference to their murdering of those testimonies and Uh, doing so from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was stoned to death in the temple during the time of Joash. All of these faithful witnesses were killed, and their blood shed on the ground. This is the blood of Abel. Now, Abel's blood speaks, and Christ's blood speaks. And Christ's blood speaks a better word. So what is it that Abel's blood says? What is the voice given to Abel's blood? All we have to do is look even at that passage in Genesis where the blood of Abel is first mentioned. In Genesis chapter 4 and verse 10, the Lord comes to Cain. Remember the one who killed his brother, who shed his brother's innocent blood. The Lord comes to Cain and he says, What have you done? The voice of Here's, the, here's where I think the writer of Hebrews is picking this up. The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from that same ground, which has opened up its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. And when you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength, and you shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Abel's blood spoke, didn't it? And it spoke to God. Abel's blood spoke a word to God. 
crying out to God from the earth itself, crying out, avenge me. Innocent blood has been shed. And I think the same thing is borne out in the only other passage that speaks about the blood of Abel. In Luke chapter 11 and verse 49, Jesus making a reference to God's grace in sending all of the prophets. He says, Therefore the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation from the blood of Abel, to the blood of Zechariah who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, the Lord says, it will be required of this generation. Abel's blood and the blood of all of the martyrs speaks. It cries out. And it cries out for justice. For retribution. Charles Spurgeon said, the first Shedding of human blood was a very terrible experiment. Whether Cain's murderous blow was premeditated or not, the sight of a bleeding human corpse must have been a terrible novelty to him. He had not been hardened by reading details of warfare or listening to tales of murder, killing, and slaying. These were new terrors to mankind. And he who was the ringleader in such violence must have been filled with mingled astonishment at the result of his blow and apprehension as to its consequences. I think I see him standing there by that corpse for a moment stiff with fright, awestruck at the sight of blood. Will the skies dart malignant fires upon him? Will the sodden earth produce speedy avengers for, uh, from her astonished soil? What questions must have flashed through that murderer's mind? But lo, the warm lifeblood flows in a crimson stream upon the earth, and some ghastly comfort arises to the mind of the guilty wretch as he observes the earth soak in the blood. It stands, not in a pool, but the earth opens her mouth to receive it and conceal his brother's blood. Sad memorials bespatter the vegetation and crimson the soil, but still the dreadful flood is drying up and the murderer feels momentary joy. Perhaps Cain went on his way dreaming that the terrible matter was all over. He had done the deed and it could not be undone he had smitten the blow, ridded himself of the presence of the one who was obnoxious to him. The blood had been swallowed up by the earth, and there was an end to the business, which need cause no further thought. There was no machinery in those days of police and law and judges and gallows, and therefore Cain had little or nothing to fear. Strong and hale a man with no one to punish him and no one to accuse him and upbraid him except his father and mother and those possibly too bowed with grief and too mindful of their own offense to show much resentment toward their firstborn. He may therefore have imagined that the deed was speechless and silent and that now oblivion would cover his crime. 
so that he may go on his way as though his deed were never done. It was not so, however, for though that blood was silent in the seared conscience of Cain, it had a voice elsewhere. A mysterious voice went up from beyond the skies. It reached the ear of the invisible and moved the heart of eternal justice so that breaking through the veil which conceals the infinite from man, God revealed himself and spoke to Cain, What hast thou done? The voice of thy brother's blood crieth unto me from the ground. Then Cain knew that blood could not be idly spilt, that murderer that murder would be avenged. For there was a tongue in every drop of that vital essence which flowed from the murdered manhood, which prevailed with God so that he would interpose and hold a solemn inquest thereon. Abel's blood spoke, and God answered with a curse of justice and judgment upon Cain. But it's not just innocent blood shed in murder that cries out to God with a voice for his justice upon sin. James chapter 5, where James talks about those who had enriched themselves by mistreating and oppressing and dealing unjustly with their workers. And he says, the wages of your workers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, the wages are crying out to God against you. Stolen money has a voice. Listen, all sin has a mysterious voice that calls out to God, demanding justice be done. This is wrong, it says. Avenge me. This is evil in your good world. Surely you will not let this go unpunished. Where is justice? How long, O Lord, until evil is rewarded with its due? This is the voice of sin. This is the voice of all of our misdeeds that seem to be swallowed up in the earth and covered. No one will deal with and know about. But every sin, like every drop of blood from Abel's body, cries out to God for justice. And the Lord answers, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, he will surely reap. The law bears this testimony. It is an eye for an eye. It is a tooth for a tooth. It is blood for blood. And all of your sins, take all of those sins and heap them up in a big pile and hear what a voice they must have crying out to God for justice. But he says, through faith, you have come to blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. 
For this one, while he was nailed to the cross, blood pouring out from his body, cried out, Father, forgive them. And this was no mere sentiment. This blood cries out from the foot of that cross. Justice has been done. It's been paid. Judgment has been meted out. Amen. The public record of debt of the sins of all of those who humble themselves before Christ was nailed to that cross. And now every drop of blood lifts its voice up to heaven and says, Paid! Revenged! Finished! Father, forgive them. Can the Father fail to take heed of the voice of the blood that is so precious to him? Can the blood of the one with whom he is well pleased fail to be effective before God? And what human heart can be so hard as to not be softened by the voice of such grace coming from that blood that was spilt, that blood that he himself spilt by his own sin? What heart? And what heart would be so, what heart could not be emboldened to lay aside his fear and to draw near through the throne to the throne of grace. Arise, my soul. Arise, shake off thy guilty fears. The bleeding sacrifice in thy behalf appears. Before the throne my surety stands. My name is written on his hands. Five bleeding wounds he bears, received on Calvary, and they pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. Forgive him, oh forgive, they cry. Nor let that ransom sinner die. The father hears him pray, his dear anointed one. He cannot turn away the presence of his son. And his spirit answers to the blood and tells me, I am born of God. To God I'm reconciled, his pardoning voice I hear. He owns me for his child, I can no longer fear. With confidence I now draw nigh. And Father, Abba, Father, cry. O believer, you have come to the blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Let us pray. Let's take a moment to respond to the Lord. I want every single one of you, where you sit, to deal with God in your heart. To think over what the Lord has revealed here. Confess your sin. Put your hope and faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Call out to Him. I'm a sinner. I need a Savior. Oh, listen, do not refuse him who is speaking. What what an awful thing that would be. Don't turn away from what you know to be true. 
persevere, how much worse would it be for you who, have, who would trample underfoot the blood of God's Son than it was for those who died under the types and shadows of the Old Covenant? Oh, God has given us so much more to see, to know. Let us, none of us, refuse the one who speaks. Maybe you feel that you're under the discipline of the Lord. Don't be weary. Don't run away from him. His work is painful sometimes. It's the scalpel of the law. But then comes the suture of the gospel. Let that work have its good effect. That you may be perfect and complete. Those who let themselves be exercised by the work of God's grace and the law and the gospel, they, they share the very holiness of God. It yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to them.